Well, I want to challenge each and every one of us to defend our faith as we study in our continuing series entitled Defending Your Faith. This is part two of a series of messages that we will endeavor to undertake as we move along in our study of Scripture. I want each and every one of us to defend our faith in the greatest way and in our presuppositional apologetic for defending our faith, I want us tonight to look at a very, very profound topic that we should study, and that is the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture. You remember last time when we did part one of our message, we really were able just to introduce the topic of defending our faith, and we spoke about the fact that Christianity must be both defensive and it must also take the offensive. And we talked at length about the fact that those who are professing believers in Jesus Christ must take Christianity to a watching world, and that is Christianity on the offensive. We go to those who attack the Bible, we go to those who attack Christianity, we go to those who say that Christ is not the only way, and we present to them very proactively the message of the cross. And we also have Christianity on the defensive. That is, we defend those who attack us. We defend those who say that the Bible isn't true, that Christianity is not the way, that Jesus is not God, and we defend ourselves against those attacks. You remember I shared with you that 1 Timothy 3.15 says that we are to take the hope that is within us and be ready to defend it at any moment. And I thought that it would be good for us tonight to start out by taking this matter of Christianity on the defensive and use that as the first block of our study together. Now, it's going to take us a number of times to, to go through all of the things for which we must arm ourselves in defending our faith. And tonight, the very first thing that any solid apologist does is defend Christianity on the basis of our doctrine of the Scripture. And that's what I want to do tonight. Christianity is first and foremost a religion that has the Bible as its source of authority. And that's the first place to start. In fact, whenever you open up a systematic theology of the Christian religion, you should always find there, first and foremost, a defense of Christianity on the basis of Scripture, on the basis of the Word of God, commonly called bibliology. Bibliology, the study of the doctrine of the Bible. And we want to occupy our time tonight with that study as we defend our faith defensively against those who would attack. And we also know from the statements of Scripture that Christianity will not always be attacked by those who disregard it from the outside. There are also those who tend to twist the Scripture and deny the Scripture, whether intentionally or not, from the inside. You remember in Acts 20 that the Apostle Paul said, now I want you to be aware, these elders of the church at Ephesus, there on the island of Miletus, I want you to be aware that there will be those who will attack you, both from without and from within. He said, even ravenous wolves will rise up from among your own selves, Paul says, and they will lead many astray. And so whether we're talking about someone who attacks the Scripture from the outside or someone who attacks it from within, we must be aware of what we believe. And I want to challenge you to affirm your own personal belief in the authority of Scripture this evening. Now, I want to give you an illustration of someone who might have given us this first opportunity to arm ourselves. It happened to me and some others at Grace Community Church some years ago, there was a, a man, an attorney, who wrote John MacArthur, and he had read one of John's books, and he disagreed with the theology that he found in it. And he began to fire some correspondence to us, uh, beginning to attack the authority of Scripture, although obviously he didn't think he was. He was a professing believer. But what he did was he typed on his legal letterhead, the name of his law firm, made it look real official, and he 
put immediately all of us on the defensive in what he wrote. But it was a great exercise for us to defend our faith. First of all, he suggested that John MacArthur's views were, quote, fatally flawed by three false assumptions. And he suggested three correctives to help straighten out John MacArthur's teaching. And the first was this. He said that we needed to understand that there is a distinction between the Word of God and the Scriptures. That was his first corrective. And then secondly, he suggested that we need to see that in, the bo- in both the Old and New Testaments, the phrases, the Word and the Word of God should be understood really as references to the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, he said that whenever the word Scripture appears in the Bible, it refers only to the Old Testament. And he was very, very vociferous in his defense of these correctives that all Christians need to affirm these things. In fact, he enclosed a paper he had written for distribution, and in that paper he wrote these words. Exhaustive analysis of each occasion that the terms the Word or words of God are used in both New Testament and the Old Testament clearly indicate they are names for or refer to the spoken words of Christ only, not to the written words of the New Testament. These references in Scripture never demote or bring down the authority of the Word as the author of Scripture to the lesser authority of the words in Scripture. He said the New Testament Scriptures only contain the inanimate words of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. They are not the living Word of God, the Holy Spirit Himself. And that was his thesis. Elsewhere he added, quote, The New Testament Scriptures merely contain the words of God. They are not the Word of God, but the authority both of and for the Word of God or the Holy Spirit. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, this man is seriously flawed in his thinking because he has a number of very, very thorny problems as he tries to defend his view of Scripture. First, if you gathered what I said, he was stating explicitly that the Scriptures are not the Word of God, not the Word of God written. He's willing to allow that they contain the words of God, but that they are not the Word of God themselves. And so he subordinates the authority of the Word to the words of Christ themselves, uh, sort of pitting them against each other. And he was equating the Bible as the Word of God to a reference to the ministry or the person of the Holy Spirit. And then he was saying also that by stating that the Scriptures only contained the inanimate words of the Holy Spirit, he was really echoing a big heresy that was very, very prominent in the early part and middle part of this century from neo-Orthodoxy, that the Word of God uh, is only the Word of God when it hits me. It's inanimate until it becomes alive when I read it and begin to see its relevance for my life. And then, of course, probably the most heretical thing that he was saying was that he set the incarnate word, Jesus, against the inscripturated word, the Bible. And of course we know that those things are not contradictory to each other. In fact, they coalesce so very well that with regard to the words of Jesus themselves and the words written in the Bible, there is no contradiction at all. They are in sum and total the very word of the living God. You know, if this man had studied more thoroughly and if he had placed himself in humility under the God-ordained teachers of the Word of God, I don't think he would have been saying these things. Now you say, why is it that I bring that up as an illustration? Well, I bring that up as an illustration because, interestingly, this man was a former member of Grace Community Church. He was an attorney, as I mentioned before, and he was a former member of the elder board at Grace Community Church. And somehow he had become very askew. It was before John MacArthur became the pastor and uh, there were not true elders there. Uh, They didn't have a classic elder board like we would have it at the Bible Church of Little Rock. But in their position of spiritual leadership there at Grace, before John became the pastor, this man was one of the spiritual leaders of the church. And he had left Grace before John became the pastor and he had begun his spiritual odyssey, as it were, toward these... uh, 
discoveries of the Bible and began to, in fact, deny the veracity of Scripture. Now, that can happen to anyone. If you do not have a solid understanding of the Scripture, if you do not have a solid bibliology, a solid understanding of the doctrine of the Scripture, many of those things could be uh, befalling Christians. And I want us to know, first and foremost, that whenever you defend your faith, uh, whenever it is attacked either from without or from within, know this, that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. The Scripture, as contained in the Old and New Testaments, are authoritative. Now, just as we heard tonight from Jim Bradshaw regarding uh, the distribution of Scripture, the Gideons are firm in their commitment that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. Uh, you don't go through the pains that they go through to distribute copies of the Scripture unless you believe that the Bible is the authority from God to us. If this man really had submitted himself to the authority of Scripture rather than his own interpretation of Scripture, he would find out that the Bible is precisely the true Word of God. It is true. Now, many of us would say, I believe it to be true. I affirm that it is true. It's just when I go into situations where I'm asked to defend the Bible, I don't have the confidence that I need. I need for you to give me some handles so that when I'm in a discussion with someone or even needing to correct someone from within the fellowship about the authority of Scripture, I need a defense opportunity. I need a method. And for that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And that's going to be the jumping off point for us tonight as we discover in this defense of our faith how to understand Scripture as Scripture understands itself. I want you to know what the Word of God says about itself. Because this is one of the clearest and most able defenses of Christianity from the very book that is authoritative. Now you might say, well that's fine and dandy, but that's circular reasoning. You're trying to prove the authority of Scripture on the basis of Scripture itself. And my answer to that is, yes, I am. That is exactly what I'm doing. Now, some might assume that circular reasoning is not valid, but it is valid. You can prove something from something itself, and you can prove it very well. And that's what I want to do tonight. And I want to do it in three ways. I want to make it really as simple as I possibly can. And we're going to ask ourselves three questions regarding our doctrine of the Bible or what the Scripture says about itself. And I'm going to use three words that end in I-O-N, so I want you to remember these things. You have heard these words very well, and you might even know a very good definition, but I want you to have it in your mind so that at any time you can prove the authority of Scripture from your own defense of the Scripture. All right? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. There, Paul says to Timothy, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the preacher, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now that is one of the seminal texts in all of the Word of God about itself. And I want us to dig into this particular passage so that we might have a wonderful and a very systematic defense of the doctrine of the Bible according to the Bible itself. And the first question I want you to see and ask yourself is, what is Scripture? What is Scripture? What it is in its essence. 
And the key word that I want you to know regarding this first point is the word canonization. Canonization. How do we arrive at the process of recognizing the canon of Scripture? Now, when I use the word canon, what I'm really referring to is a rod or a standard by which we recognize what is and is not the Word of God. The reason why I use this term rod or standard is because that is what the very word canon means. It means a rule or a rod or a standard by which something is to be measured, a standard of rule. And when we speak of the canon, we're speaking of the anthology of books that we recognize as Holy Scripture. I can almost hear someone immediately say, How are you going to prove anything about the canon from Scripture itself? Because nowhere in the Scripture are the canonical books identified by name. Well, that is true, true enough. But the Bible nevertheless has much to say about what is Scripture and what is not. And frankly, there are many people who have a very defective view of the determination of the canon of Scripture. Because for many of us, we have this view that the canon was realized by a group of men somewhere who met in a church council or met in some holy conclave somewhere, and they decided arbitrarily what particular books are scriptural and which are not. And if that's our view, we have a very wrong view of the canon. It could be that this attorney man uh, was in error with regard to his view of the canon itself. Maybe that was the first place for which he then became off base. And I want you to go through a number of passages with me that help us determine the true and faithful recognition of this standard or rule we call the canon. I want you to begin to write some of these passages down. We don't have time to look up every one of them, but I want you to write them down in your notes so that you can have them and then look at them later as I quote them. I want to first go to the Old Testament and allow it to speak for itself regarding the validity of the books that are listed there. In the Old Testament, we hear from a number of writers regarding the authoritative divine revelation from God that we call our Old Testament. These writers revered and obeyed and meditated and treated these Old Testament books, these 39 books, as the very word of the living God. Listen to some of these verses. In Deuteronomy 31.9, we find this. Moses wrote the law, gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. He wrote the law. You know that that is a specific reference to the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Moses wrote this law, and he gave it to the priests and the sons of Levi to carry in the Ark of the Covenant for all of the elders of Israel. Deuteronomy 31.9 And then God commanded that this law be read in front of all Israel in their hearing, also in front of the women and children and the alien, that means those outside in the other nations who would come into Israel, in order that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. That was directly from God through Moses to the people. I want you to to take this word which Moses has written down and I want you to read it in the hearing of the people as the authoritative word of God. So... The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Law of the Scriptures. And then later in that same chapter, Deuteronomy 31, we read, It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. In other words, it was to be a standard or a rule. We hear a lot today in our uh, television sets about the rule of law. Well, the rule of law of the Old Testament were the first five books of Moses. And then you move away from there and you have this statement in Joshua. You're very familiar with it. Joshua 1.8. 
which says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. That law book of God is for us the standard, the rule. And we are called upon there in Joshua 1.8 to read it, to meditate upon it, and if we do, our way will be prosperous and we will be successful. You, of course, know as well that Psalm 119, almost virtually every verse in Psalm 119 is extolling the virtues of the Word of God, its authority. I'll only read one verse from it, Psalm 119, verse 142. It says, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. You see, its statement about itself is that the law of God is the truth of God. They are synonymous. They're not broken up as this attorney would want us to believe. The law is truth, and truth is contained in the law. And then Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. Isaiah wrote this, And when they say to you, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Isaiah was saying authoritatively, if they do not affirm the truth of God as I reveal it, Isaiah the prophet, from God through my mouth to you, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light. We should return to the law and to the testimony, he said. In other words, he was saying that what I'm writing to you is authoritative. It is coming from God through me to you. In fact, in Isaiah 51.16, this very specific statement is written. God says, I have put my words in your mouth. You see, we can know and have confidence in the canon of Scripture, the rule the standard, because God has said to Isaiah and to the other prophets and to every writer of the Old Testament, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah told his scribe Baruch these words in Jeremiah 36.6, You go and read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation, listen to this, the words of the Lord to the people. You see, the words of the Lord Himself were given directly to Jeremiah and his secretary or his amanuensis, his scribe, Baruch, then wrote those words verbatim. They came from God through a human agent to the very people of God so that it could be authoritative and active. And then maybe one last verse from the Old Testament. The opening verse of Malachi identifies that prophecy as the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. You see, if you really studied your Old Testament, and I just gave you a very scant smattering of verses which affirm that the authority of the Old Testament is proven, you would read hundreds of passages that say the word of the Lord, the word spoke through the prophet saying, uh, even some of those New Testament passages which refer back to the Old Testament and refer to it as Scripture. One of the most helpful books in this regard, because we don't have time in our series to cover every one of these things, is a book by, by Norm Geisler and William Nix, N-I-X, called A General Introduction to the Bible. And they do a good job of supporting this idea of the canonization of Scripture, the authority of Scripture as we now know it. And they demonstrate that virtually in every book in the Old Testament claims for itself either explicitly or implicitly to be the very Word of God. And if that weren't enough, Jesus Himself affirms the very authority of the Old Testament for us. You remember just before the resurrection, Jesus opened His disciples' understanding about the Scriptures, and then even after the resurrection, when He was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says this in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, He told them, 
These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And in that statement, Jesus gives us three divisions of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, normally, it's just divided into the two, right? The law and the prophets. But Jesus also adds the idea of the Psalms so that there would be absolutely no question what he's referring to. And what he's referring to is the entirety of the Old Testament. And so just in one statement, if we just had that one statement, Jesus would affirm the canonicity, the authority of the entire Old Testament. Normally, you would see in your New Testament about 12 times the Law and the Prophets, but at least in this case, Jesus wants to make no doubt about what He is affirming. He's affirming the divine authority of the Law, the divine authority of the Prophets themselves, and the divine authority of the Psalms. Now, incidentally, virtually every Old Testament book is directly quoted in the New Testament. You might not have known that, but virtually every Old Testament book in some way, either as an explicit reference or as an allusion, is quoted in the New Testament. Now, there are a number of examples that I could give you about the New Testament in an attempt to try to cull everything down to those manageable bites that we could take in an hour or so of time. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 to affirm the authority or the canonization, the recognition of the New Testament books as authoritative words from God. 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 15. This is a very, very important word from Peter. Because what he's going to do is he's going to affirm the Pauline writings as Scripture. Notice what he says. He says in verse 14, Beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him, by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. Have you ever read that before? Peter is explicitly affirming that all of the writings of Paul are Scripture. They are authoritative They are divinely so. Peter equates all of Paul's epistles with Scripture. And so right off the bat in the New Testament, we at least know that Peter, under the divine inspiration of God Himself, is saying that all of Paul's writings themselves are scriptural. And then let me give you another example from 1 Timothy 5.18. 1 Timothy 5.18. You don't have to turn there, but it says this, The Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And when it says, the Scripture says, it gives two references. The first, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And that, called Scripture, comes from Deuteronomy 25.4 which says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and that's the only place in Scripture where that particular phrase is found. And so the New Testament says that the Scripture is that phrase, and that is a reference all the way back to Deuteronomy. So you have 1 Timothy affirming Deuteronomy as Scripture. But then there's another phrase in that passage, 1 Timothy 5.18, that says the laborer is worthy of his wages. Where is that found? Can anyone tell me where that is found? In Luke. Very good. Very good. It's in Luke 10.7. And it says, The worker is worthy of his wages. It's also in the parallel account in Matthew 10.10, but it primarily finds its reference in Luke 10.7. And, therefore, 1 Timothy 5.18 is saying that the Scripture says, 
And then it quotes, the worker is worthy of his wages, which is a pointing back to Luke under the authority of Scripture. So, Timothy is to affirm that Luke is scriptural when he writes. Geisler and Nix say this, If the writings of Luke, who was not an apostle, are quoted as Scripture, and Peter, who considered Paul's writings to be Scripture, then it is not difficult to conceive how the New Testament as a whole would be considered to be Scripture. In fact, the New Testament is filled with claims of authority equal to that of the rest of Scripture. The apostles themselves who wrote the New Testament books and those closely associated with the apostles flatly claimed that their authority was coming from the authority of God Himself and when they wrote, they were writing the very words of God. You remember when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in verses 37 and 38 these words, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Now that is a very, very strong word. Paul must have believed that what he was writing were in fact the very commandments of the Lord Himself. They are scriptural. They're authoritative. Indeed, even a few verses later, in chapter 15, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and also you stand by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 3. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. I'm preaching to you the authoritative word of God. Many, many times. The New Testament affirms about itself its own divine authority. For instance, in Hebrews 2.3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. 2 Peter 3.2, Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. You remember Colossians 4.16, And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you for your part read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Authoritative. Binding. 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Paul says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. You think that was a letter that needed to be read to the brethren? I adjure you by the Lord. The Lord has told me to tell you to read this letter. It's authoritative for you. John 21, 24. This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. 1 Timothy 4:11. Prescribe and teach these things. Authority. Titus 2.15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus 3.8, concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. These are the authoritative words of God Himself contained in the canon of Scripture. Oh, I wish we had time to go on with other passages that affirm this truth. But when someone comes to you, you memorize all of these passages. Yes, you memorize all of these passages and you then quote to them the authority that Scripture claims for itself. And when you do, because we're good, solid, presuppositional apologists, we believe that God will use the authority of His Word, the power of His Word, to convert a soul. And so you just keep quoting the Scripture. You just keep quoting these verses and God will do His work. You know that there are some other passages which I want you to know which are very, very important. Let me turn to two of them that show you the, the, the actual way that these words came from God to the apostles. I want you to turn in John chapter 14. I was talking with Mike Mitchell about this this morning. And these are two very important passages. Sometimes misapplied 
to refer to all of us, maybe even in our witnessing experiences, but really these are direct words from Christ and the Holy Spirit to the apostles themselves about the authority of their words that they wrote. In John chapter 14, there's a section beginning in verse 16 that talks about the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to His disciples, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. And so, when Jesus left, was ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeded from Christ and the Father, and He then was the authoritative voice for the apostles to bring into remembrance everything that Jesus had said to those apostles so that when they wrote the Scripture, they would have everything down pat, as we would say. You say, well, where is that? Look at verse 25. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you, you the apostles, the writers of Scripture, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's not a verse primarily to us. That is a verse primarily to the apostles themselves that tell them that they have nothing to fear. Everything that Jesus wants them to know about His teaching ministry, about all of those miracles recorded, they are going to be authoritatively given to them by the remembrance of their minds by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Now, Mike came up and asked me the question, how is it that all of these New Testament writers, especially the Gospel writers, how could they in such fine detail say everything that perfectly needed to be said, remembering with the exact verbs and nouns and accounts of everything that Jesus did and everything that He spoke? This is the verse that affirms that. The Holy Spirit took their minds and recalled to their remembrance everything. And in John 16, the same verse is affirmed. Same idea is affirmed. Almost the same language. John 16, verse 12. Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. So not only is He going to give them the words of remembrance of what Jesus did and spoke, but He also will disclose what is to come. You might even be able to add by that last phrase, all of the future things that were going to occur, maybe even all the way through John the Apostle's revelation, all of those things would be disclosed by the Holy Spirit to those Bible writers. And all of that, my friends, is contained, as 2 Timothy 3 says, in that one two-word reference, all Scripture. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. All the Scripture. The 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. Now, there are a couple of books that I want you to secure for your library so that you can have the fullest word on this account. F.F. F. Bruce has written a very fine work called The Canon of Scripture. The Canon of Scripture. And you would do well to secure that book for your library because it affirms in the defense of the faith how the canon of Scripture came about, how it was recognized. It was not that the canon was instituted it was not that the canon was discovered, it was that the canon was recognized by the early church. In other words, they, they affirmed the books that spoke of themselves as the authoritative Word of God. They simply were superintended by God to recognize what was already Scripture. They didn't themselves come up with Scripture, they recognized the truth of Scripture. They weren't the determiner, they were the ones who... Uh, they were not the discoverers, they were, were the ones who determined the canon of Scripture. You could say it this way, the church is the child, not the mother of the canon. The church is the witness to the canon, not the judge of it. The church is the servant of the canon, not the master of it. It was simply an issue of recognition. 
And when the Scripture itself says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, you can have confidence that what you hold in your hands is the very Word that God wants for you in your life. There aren't any lost books of the Bible. We were talking about this on Friday in our time of discipleship. And if you were to go into Walden Books or Barnes & Noble or Books a Million and you were to go to the religion section, which as you know is a hodgepodge of almost everything else except true religion, and if you were to go on that shelf, you would see books like this, The Lost Books of the Bible. And it would be someone's view that there are these books out there that have been lost for centuries but now have been rediscovered. And they're the authoritative words of God. Not so. Not so. God not only put the Scripture together by Himself through human agency, but He also superintended the process so that we as the church could recognize them as authoritative. God was not going to allow any of the books to be lost for sure. You say one other thing before we move on to number two. You say that they are the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New, 66 books of the Bible. Oh, what about some of these other Christian groups who add to the Bible some other books? Say, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church who add what is commonly called the Apocrypha. Well, at least a word about that. First of all, the Apocrypha was not added to the Scripture until the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent tried to add them. Oddly enough, that council took place 1,500 years after the last of our 66 books of the Bible was written. And no other council had ever suggested that these books should be considered Scripture. 1,500 years after the last book of the Bible was written. That could give you a very clear indication that those apocryphal books are in fact not Scripture. And that's why we call them apocryphal a synonym for the term fictitious. And so I want you to read, I want you to study on this, but at least enough to have an affirming nature to Scripture itself by the 66 books of your Bible. All right, number two. All Scripture. All 66 books of the Bible are Scripture. Secondly, Paul says to Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or all Scripture is God-breathed. Our first word is canonization. Our second word is inspiration. Inspiration. The Bible is inspired by God. What is it? It is Scripture, and it is all Scripture. How do we receive it? We receive it by inspiration. You say, what is inspiration? Let me define it for you. Inspiration is this. Inspiration is the influence of the Holy Spirit over the writers of Scripture. It is the influence of God, the Holy Spirit, over the writers of Scripture. Inspiration is the influence of the Holy Spirit over the writers of Scripture. It is the influence of God, the Holy Spirit, over the writers of Scripture, whereby He guided those men. He guided those men, not apart from their minds, but by guiding them through their own minds, their own vocabularies, their own human faculties to pen the books of Scripture. That's inspiration. God, through the Holy Spirit, guided the writers of Scripture by using their own personalities, their minds, their vocabulary, their human faculties to pen the books of Scripture. And yet, God always superintending the process so that the finished product, those original autographs that the scribes, the writers of Scripture themselves penned, were the infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God, verbatim, as God would have it. God superintended all of that process. You say, does God continue to inspire today? And what's the answer? No. God does not inspire, at least in this sense that we've defined it. God does not inspire today. You might hear someone say, oh, that artist was inspired to put that artwork together. Or someone was inspired to write a poem or a song. Well, that's a very, very different use as 
to the term inspiration as we use it. The inspiration of Scripture, as theologians use it regarding the Bible, is that it was a superintendent process that God used to write the Scripture through the human agency, all the personality, all the backgrounds, and the work of men. So that together, the work of God and the work of men produced the Scripture. And when we talk about inspiration, we also want to affirm that it was verbal inspiration. That means that every word of the Bible, every word in those original autographs, those original manuscripts, every word was inspired by God, verbatim, as God would have it. We can have the confidence that everything God wanted us to know was perfectly preserved in the writings of Scripture for us. Every verb, every noun, every preposition, every word was as God wanted us to receive it. And when I say every word, normally you might read in books or hear in the discussion of the doctrine of the Bible, the plenary inspiration of Scripture. Plenary just simply means all. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is authoritative. You see in your Bible there in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It comes from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and pneustos, which is the word for spirit or to breathe. And it's talking about God breathing out His very words to the writers of Scripture. It does not mean that God breathed something into the words. It is saying that Scripture is the very breath of God. God Himself breathed out the words of Scripture. And might I also add at this point a parenthetical comment that says that this is one of the strongest affirmations of the sovereignty of God there is. Tremendous affirmation of the sovereignty of God. God sovereignly superintended the writing of the Bible. And He breathed out the very words that He wanted them to use, but also doing it mysteriously and supernaturally based on their own personalities, their own vocabulary usage, You say, well, those writers, for the most part, were not well-educated. How did God use them? Well, a God can take the use out of just about anything and anyone, right? If He can use Balaam's donkey, He can use just about anything to speak His Word. And He used those who, by the world's eyes, were not well-educated, not well-trained, and He used their vocabulary, He used their backgrounds, their personalities, and yet when we have for us in the original autographs the very breathed-out words from God. What a great truth on the sovereignty of God. I love the example or the analogy that I've often heard that when we talk about divine inspiration and we talk about the, the use of of men as the human agents of Scripture, you shouldn't have any problem with that. Think about the virgin birth. Mary, though she was a sinner like you and me, she brought forth a child who was God in the flesh. Perfect. Physically, genetically, humanly, he was definitely Mary's offspring. There is absolutely no question about it. Yet, he was also the sinless Son of God, untainted by human sin, fully divine in every way. And you see, in the same way, the Scripture are the very words of the human authors, all of their personalities, all of their education, even their flaws, even their sins. But God superintending the process to bring about the very words of God, He inspired them, He breathed them out so that the Word of God could say about itself, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Isn't that a tremendous thought? Don't you see why Scripture has such inherent authority? Because God is the one who's superintending all of the process. Listen to some of these passages. Matthew 5. Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew 5, 17-18. Well, what a great promise. Not one jot or tittle. You say, what in the world is a jot and a tittle? Well, each one were the smallest strokes in both the Hebrew and Greek alphabet. The jot and the tittle. 
And Jesus was saying, whether you're talking about uh, the biggest words that could be constructed in language, or you're talking about the smallest little stroke of a pen, everything is from God and will be accomplished. All will be fulfilled. John 10.35, Jesus said, The Scripture cannot be broken. It does not err. It will not fall away. It is perfect. It cannot be broken. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also constantly thank God. Paul says, When you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Boy, what a great statement. You didn't receive from us man's message. You received from us the word of God. It's God's message to you. Verse 12 of Jeremiah 1 says, Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. You see the the superintentionality of God? I'm watching over my word. Remember Isaiah 55, 11 and following? It talks about the fact that God's ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. But He says, I will preach my word. I will send it out. And it will accomplish everything for which I sent it. Everything. There's no wasted words with God. Everything is authoritative and everything is perfect. Hebrews 4.12, very familiar passage to you. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Boy, what a great truth that God has inspired, breathed out His very words. Even though flawed and feeble are the ones who write the Scripture, yet when they write, they are writing under the very authority of God and He doesn't let anything slip. He doesn't let anything fall away. He doesn't make any mistakes, even though He uses those who have made mistakes before. Boy, that's, that's incredible. Every time those Scripture writers sat down with pen in hand, God superintended the process that they never made a mistake. You see, that's a great, great affirmation of the sovereignty of God. When someone comes to you and they doubt the veracity of Scripture or the authority of Scripture, all these passage, uh, passages I give you, you memorize every one of them. And you're going to be the greatest evangelist you could possibly be. Just keep rattling off those verses to them. Just keep telling them about what the Scripture says. Because frankly, as I've talked to some of these people, they can give their claims, sort of like uh, what Bo Beatles mentioned this morning. Uh, He was sort of culling all of the best of what he saw in the religions, and he would go to those who would be unsuspecting, and he would begin to ask them questions that he assumed they couldn't answer. Until that one who came to him who had a confidence in the Word of God, and he spoke the Word of God, and God used that Word, and He penetrated that hard heart. And Bo came to faith in Christ. You just keep preparing the hearts of people by sharing the Word of God with them, and God will do His work. If you have a confidence in the canonization of Scripture, and if you have the confidence in the inspiration of Scripture, then God can use you as an evangelist, and He can use you effectively. All right, number three. Number three, and finally. In 2 Timothy 3.15, it says, All Scripture, what is it? It's Scripture. How do we receive it? By inspiration of God. And then in verse 16 it says, And that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And of course, as we read before, Paul was saying to Timothy, I have this confidence that when you were young, the Scriptures were shared with you and it was the wisdom that was able to lead you to salvation. So what do we have in 2 Timothy 3 regarding the Bible and what it says about itself? All Scripture is inspired, and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This answers the question, what will it do? What will it do? What is it? It's Scripture. How is it received? By inspiration. And what will it do? It will change your life. That's right. It will change your life. It will teach you, it will reprove you, it will correct you, and it will train you in righteousness. It will give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, and it will give you all that you need for your sanctification. If you want the ION words, there they are. Salvation and sanctification. You want to have a confidence in Scripture, then you need to read it. And you need to study it. And you need to meditate on it. And you need to memorize it. 
I've joked about you memorizing all these passages, but you should. You should memorize all of these passages. You should know where they are in your Bibles so that when someone comes to attack you with regard to what you believe, you can say, here is what the Scripture says about itself. And if you begin to study it in that way, how much greater will your confidence be in this Word? When it says that Scripture is profitable for teaching, it ought to be because Jesus said in Matthew 28, you as disciples need to teach every one of your disciples everything whatsoever I have commanded you. There's a command to teach. When it says that it is profitable for reproof or admonishment, even with regard to yourself, the Scripture is to admonish you in your life. And even with regard to your children, Ephesians 6.4 says you're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So everything you do and everything you are as a person or as a parent, you're to reprove yourself and one another with regard to the Scripture. You're to use the Scripture in that way. And then it says correction. You remember in 2 Timothy 2.25 it says that you're to use the Word of God so that perhaps you can correct those who need to repent and be led to the knowledge of the truth. That's what the Scripture does. It corrects people. When they are off the path, it challenges them to return to the path. When they're on the path, it challenges them to remain on the path. That's what Scripture does. And then it says training in righteousness. I love Hebrews 5.14. It says that those people who learn how to discern good and evil are those who have their senses trained. They have their senses trained. How can you have your senses, your eyes and your ears and your mouth, how can you have your senses trained to discern between good and evil unless you know the Word of God? If it's that, and if it's only that which penetrates into the hardest heart, it goes in between the joints and the marrow, between soul and spirit, then we better know it. We better know the Scripture. And if we're going to be the most able defenders of the faith, when anyone comes to you, you're able to say, I have a confidence in the Scripture. I have a confidence, confidence that all Scripture is given to us by God. I have a confidence that it is inspired, that is, that God used human beings, but the final product was perfect and authoritative. And I also believe that even if you don't understand those things, you can understand this, that God has given us the Scripture to teach you, to reprove you, to correct you, to train you in righteousness. Well, I want to arm every one of us with the confidence. We were talking on Friday with our men that we talked to on Fridays, and we were going through some of these things, and I said to them, men, I want you to know the Word of God like the back of your hand. I want you to be able to define inspiration. I want you to be able to define revelation. I want you to be able to define canonization. And I want you to have passages which support all of those things. I want you to define these things so that you know the truth, so that you can teach the people of God, and that you can defend yourself against the attacks of those people outside the church. You see, if you and I were able to defend the Scripture in this way with a level of confidence, then how much greater would our opportunity to be, our, our opportunity be to share with people this confidence that we have in Christ? I'm convinced that much of our evangelism is weak because our own level of confidence is weak. Is that not so? If we had a greater level of confidence, our evangelization of people would be more confident because we could say, I know the truth. And when I teach the truth to those who are contradicting, who are attacking me, I can trust that the Spirit of God is going to take these truths, bind them to their conscience, so that then they can see God work in their lives to bring them to faith in Christ. I was so glad Bo gave that illustration this morning. I give the same kind of illustration. When I was a student in college and I began to read the Scriptures, no one person shared the Gospel with me. No one person defended the Bible, but it was when I went to the Scriptures themselves and I began to read them. And I began to realize that the Scripture is the very Word of God and it began to humble me. It, it challenged all my presuppositions. It, it broke my heart. And that was good. It broke my heart and it gave me faith in Christ. And I'm so very grateful. Twenty years ago, I was sitting in a dorm room at Arkansas State University reading the Scripture and God gave me the opportunity to repent and believe in Christ. And I believe that if you take the Word of God written 
And if you, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, the living Word, take these truths, you can have confidence that God is speaking to you. I love what Spurgeon said when he said, the Bible is like a lion. You let it out and it'll take care of itself. All you have to do is have confidence in the Word of God and when you are able to defend it, just let it out there. Just let it go and let God do its work. I want you to bow your heads with me tonight. And as you do, I want you to ask yourself some very, very penetrating questions. Ask yourself these questions. Do I love to defend my faith? Do I love to defend my faith? And do I understand the Word of God as I should for the greatest defense I could muster? Do I love to defend my faith? And do I have a love for God's Word that gives me that greatest defense? We can talk about canonization and we can talk about inspiration and we can talk about salvation and sanctification. You must say to yourself, I love God and I love His Word. The salvation that He's given me And the sanctification that I'm pursuing is only complete when my love for God and His Word grows ever deeper and I can defend very aggressively what I believe. Do I believe that these 66 books of the Bible are the true words of God? And if I do, how do I? And if I believe that God had inspired all of these Bible writers, can I ably defend that against the attacks of those who say, oh, it's just a human book. It was written by human authors, but it certainly wasn't inspired by God. How do you answer that question? How do you respond to those who attack the Bible? Just listen to the television or the radio or articles or conversations with people and you would find that so many people doubt that God inspired these books, even through human authors. How do you respond to that question? And maybe even more importantly, do you allow the Scripture to teach you, to reprove you, to correct you, to train you in righteousness? There's no greater training process than defending what the Scripture says about itself. And I challenge you, even as we begin this series and as you move along in your Christian experience, that you would defend the Bible by knowing what it says about itself. Father, I pray that each one here would take their copy of the Scriptures and they would search it out And that they would read, that they would study, that they would find these passages as I have listed it for them. And they would read them for themselves. And that they would memorize them. That they would meditate upon them. They would see all of these interconnected passages that speak of the authority of other Bible writers. And that they would work hard at affirming the truth that the Bible is inspired and authoritative, that we do have a certain number of books in our Bibles and no other, and that it is enough to lead us both to salvation and sanctification. Oh, Father, I pray that everyone here would come to a place of having a greater confidence in Your Word so as to have a greater confidence in their witnessing to others. And I pray that None of us would shy away from the tough questions of our detractors. And that we would take these very words from you so that you might accomplish the things that you have purposed. And that we would be your willing servants. Father, I've been so encouraged as I recently dialogued with Pastor Jeff Kratz about a young couple that he and Judy have been meeting at Barnes and Noble who have been sharing with them 
some of these same truths, defending their faith, speaking up for God. And I pray that those kinds of conversations will be multiplied throughout our entire body. And that as we go out into that watching world, even tomorrow, you would arm us with a greater confidence that we could, in fact, defend our faith and make it pleasing to you, submitting everything we say and do to the authority of your word. Lord, I pray that it would be so, and that you, by that, would bring others to us, submitting themselves to your word, so that they, too, could grow with us and defend our faith. We ask that you would bring it to pass for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.